I kind of felt when we uh, finished the eighth chapter of Luke's Gospel that I'd kind of reached a pausing section. Uh, I, I felt that more in my spirit than actually in the text itself, because Luke, of course, uh, continues to move right along. But um, as I was praying over that, uh, I, I felt that I, I just had this sense that I needed to stop and kind of take stock, that God had something that he wanted to say that was sort of... Uh, a hiatus in the middle of our study of Luke's gospel. And so I did that. And as I began to pray over it, um, it seemed like uh, the Lord was uh, indicating to me to just literally go back and review, just to, to take the retrospective look and see where we've been. And so I started to do that. And I went to our website and uh, looked at the uh, sermons on the Gospel of Luke beginning in 2013, realized that we had started August 18th last summer, so we've been at this about a year. And uh, Luke happens to have 24 chapters. We have completed eight of them in our study. And so from just a sheer numeric standpoint, we're a third of the way through. Now, the reality is you can't divide the Gospels up that way very well because all of them are weighted toward the last week of Christ's life. The, the uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem that last week and the climaxing of all of those events, the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, uh, those occupy great sections of all of the Gospels. In fact, in John's Gospel, it's, it's half of the entire book. But um, nonetheless, it kind of provides a useful uh, guide to see how Luke kind of compares to the others and where it is. And so uh, it occurred to me to go and look at a chronological uh, map of the Gospels. Now, people have studied the Bible in so many different ways. It's just fascinating all the kinds of ways that people have thought to look at the Scriptures and as I looked at the chronological uh, description of the Gospels, I realized that we're about a year into the public ministry of Christ. Now, it's hard to put an exact date on any of this. Jesus' public ministry was three, three and a half years. And um, this point by Luke chapter 8, as we end that, is about a third of the way in. So roughly a year. And that's the amount of time that the disciples have spent with him. As he called them and uh, kind of involved them with his ministry, um, the disciples have in our narrative now spent a year with Jesus. So have we in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we've been in Luke and our study of it about the same time as the disciples have been in connection and concert with Jesus following around. And what, what has happened? Well, in that year's time, uh, They've seen some pretty amazing things. They've seen all kinds of miracles of healing, uh, all the way to literally raising the dead. 
They've seen amazing miracles of spiritual deliverance as Jesus has cast out demons and delivered people from that kind of bondage. They've seen physical miracles uh, where he has exercised authority even over the elements of nature. And so they've been able to follow in Jesus' life uh, a number of demonstrations of divine authority and power that have been given to him. But also they've heard his teaching uh, in association with all of the signs and wonders. They have heard him cover certain themes over and over again. Um, when you do itinerant kind of ministry and you have a particular message to convey, you tend to do a lot of repeating it's always new to the audience that's hearing you for the first time. But for the disciples, there is a certain amount of repetition as they hear him talk about the same kinds of things on multiple occasions. Every once in a while when we get home to uh, Sunday dinner after the morning services, Jonathan will say something to me like, um, I'm pretty sure you preached that a couple months ago. <laughs> and I chuckle because <clears throat> he's undoubtedly right. I, I certainly probably covered the theme. But I didn't cover the exact same text and I didn't cover it uh, in precisely the same uh, manner, although I, I do tend to repeat myself. Uh, but there's a reason for that. And part of the reason is that God has built repetition into the scriptures. It's there for a reason. Um, and so I'm not senile when I'm doing the repetition. I just want you to know that. Not yet anyway. But what I'm doing is trying to give the same attention to certain themes that God gives to them. And when you expound the scriptures verse by verse, starting in one place and moving sequentially through, you tend to develop that. One of the reasons why I value expository preaching is because it disciplines me to cover with the same frequency that God does in his word the various topics. You know, some people have favorites, and if they are picking topics, they tend to lean toward their favorites. And so if you have a, a preacher that really likes um, uh, Revelation and the Doctrine of Last Things, you know, you, you hear a lot of prophecy. Or if you have someone that, that really uh, likes um, angels and demons and stuff like that, you have a lot of that. But I, what I seek to, to accomplish is the same balance that God has built into his word. Some things are more important, relatively speaking, than others. And those are built into the scriptures. But nonetheless, God has built repetition. And the reason is that we need to hear things again and again that have spiritual significance. Why is that? Well, the beginning of chapter 8 actually tells us. We have an enemy who every time the seed is sown uh, tries to come and take it away one way or another. He either tries to steal it right off the path or he tries to choke it out or he tries to uh, cover it up or in one way or another 
uh, we have an enemy who seeks to prevent the Word of God from taking root and developing and flourishing in our lives. And, and more than any other book, more than any other uh, kind of material, it is more difficult to assimilate Scripture into our lives because we have opposition. And God has built repetition into the Word because we need to hear things different ways, different times, different seasons. I have no doubt that every, every time I speak, for example, someone here this morning may get something for the first time. The light will come on. It's, it was said for some reason just the way they needed to hear it. And, and all of a sudden understanding develops and the light comes on. And that seed has taken root, and now it's going to begin to grow in their lives. Whereas others hear it and say, I've heard that before, I kind of got that. But there's no fruit in the life that demonstrates it. But three or four months down the road, you may hear that theme again, and now this moment you're prepared. And the Holy Spirit has brought you to a place where you can assimilate that truth. And life comes because that's your moment of spiritual uh, awakening to whatever that particular topic is. And so Jesus has been doing that with his disciples. The crowds have heard him maybe for the first or second time. But the disciples have heard him over and over and over again saying the same kinds of things. And it's by design. He's discipling them. He wants to make sure they get it. Come follow me. You know, why didn't he just give them a book? Stay home, read this book. I'll be back in six months, see how you're doing. I'll give you a test. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Spiritual development doesn't work like that. He's come follow me. Watch me. Observe me. Listen to me. Eat with me. Fish with me. Talk to the crowds with me. Spend time with me. See what I'm about. And now about a year of that has transpired. The next question I asked myself was, okay, in a year's time, what kinds of themes have recurred and what have we covered? Uh, I have brought you 36 messages on eight chapters. And as I look back over them, and these are kind of the broad strokes, but I tried to analyze those messages, and I realized this was not by design or by planning, it's just kind of taking the text as it comes. About 10 of them have been uh, primarily concerned with commitment to God and operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. Either things Jesus has actually taught or things he has demonstrated. About ten of the sermons, a little more than a fourth, have been devoted to being sold out to God and understanding the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's no wonder that our Pentecostal brothers and sisters call Luke's gospel the Pentecostal gospel. Because he has more to say about the ministry of the Holy Spirit than any other gospel writer. In fact, he takes us beyond the gospel into the book of Acts 
and unfolds all of the history of the early church, all dealing with the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So that's been a prominent theme. Another thing is we've had about eight sermons dealing with the enemy, either learning how to deal with temptation, four messages on, on the subject of dealing with temptation, and another four on the more confrontational an overt kind of conflict with demonic spirits. So Luke has given us uh, insight from Jesus' ministry about how to deal with the devil, both personally and appealing to our needs and desires and wants and and flesh and temptation, and uh, also in a broader sense and a more confrontational way with demons. There have been about four messages on the person of Jesus. Who is he? And Luke has developed both his humanity and his deity. He wants us to understand that he is fully God, but he is also fully man. And he has shown us what that looks like in practice as he has related the events that um, have occurred in the life of Jesus that demonstrate his humanity and also attest to his deity. And about four of the messages have been on attitudes and and, uh, the way we treat um, others, not only inside the community of faith amongst ourselves, but also how we treat those outside the community of faith and uh, unbelievers. So, In a year's time, Jesus has built into the lives of his disciples how to be dependent upon God and the power of the Holy Spirit, how to deal with temptation, how to deal with the devil, who is he, what is he about, and um, how, how should we... Love and care for each other. How does that work? Now, after a year's time, he calls them together. And this is where Luke 9 kind of picks up. He calls them together and he says, He gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, not a staff, not a bag, uh, bread or money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay to you. Leave the city. As for those of you who do, as for those who don't receive you, as you go out, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. How long have you known Jesus? How long? Has it been since you made that commitment to follow Jesus Christ? So it's been a while, huh? Jesus, after one year, calls his disciples together and says, Fellas, I have an assignment. I want you to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. And when you do, you're going to encounter all kinds of people with issues. Heal the sick and cast out demons. 
and uh, we'll get back together in a little while and see how it went. How many of you this morning are ready to do that? How many are ready today to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God? You say, wait a minute, hold the phone. These are going to be the apostles, Paul. Look, I mean, they have special duties. They're going to be starting the church. These are the special guys. You can't expect that of everybody. But let me remind you that when they heard the call to follow Christ, they were ordinary people. Fishermen, tax gatherers, business people, tradesmen, a few rabble-rousers in the crowd (laughs) that were politically motivated. They were just common folk. And Jesus calls them into a life of discipleship with the intention of reproducing his life in them. And in one year... From his perspective, they are ready for this assignment. He's not going to go with them. In fact, he goes off somewhere else and does some other things. We'll see that as we move into the chapters. But he sends them out on their own. And he gives them authority. And he says, go tell everybody about the kingdom of God. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 5. He says, concerning him, that is Jesus, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now, that passage is written for everyone. It's not just for the twelve. This passage in Hebrews is written to all the Hebrew believers, all the Jewish believers who have come under persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. Men and women, young and old, it includes the whole company of them. And what the writer of Hebrews says is, for by this time, you ought to be teachers. Now I want to underscore that for us this morning, and I I, I want to highlight it. Because there are two concepts that are in that statement. The first concept is, for everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, beginning with the day they trust Him as Lord and Savior, and become a follower, there is a linear relationship to the passing of time that should result in growth. We are not intended 
to come into the kingdom and stay put. We are intended to come into the kingdom as a follower of Jesus Christ and make progress that is measurable. And the writer of Hebrews tells us what that measurement is. He says, for by this time you should be teachers. But unfortunately you're not. In fact, you have regressed. And you're at a point where I've got to feed you milk again. Because meat is for the mature who, by reason of practice, have their senses trained. And I can't even give you the strong stuff. We've got to go back to the beginning. and We've got to start over. And this is for everyone. This is not a special class of people. This is for everyone. You say, wait a minute, I'm not called to be a teacher, and I'm certainly not called to stand in front of a congregation and preach, and that's, that's not my gifting. Okay, there's nothing about that here. What I read is, by this time, you should be able to explain your faith in a way that someone else can understand it. Peter puts it like this. He says, you ought to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you to those who ask. You should be able to explain yourself. So let me rephrase my question. Are you ready this morning, right now? If someone were to ask you, explain to me your faith in Christ. Or can you right now tell them how you were born again and what steps they need to follow through, what they need to understand, what's important for them to be able to make that same kind of decision to follow Christ. Can you articulate it for them? Can you put it in words? It's interesting to me that in the scriptures when it talks about elders and deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and it gives some of the criteria, that while it says that elders should be able to teach, and, and this is in the corporate sense of the, of the body of Christ, elders should be able to stand up and lead the congregation in spiritual truth and growth. It says deacons must hold the mystery of the faith in an attitude of godliness. In other words, a deacon may not have the spiritual gift of teaching and may not stand in front of the church and preach sermons, but they are to have a comprehension and understanding of the mystery of the faith in such a way that they can explain it at least one-on-one. -on -one. And no matter who you are, you're a teacher. You have family. You have people that are coming up behind you. Uh, perhaps children, perhaps grandchildren. Perhaps a friend who isn't as far along in the faith as you are, and you're in their life to help explain to them the next step. We're all learners in a journey. 
But you see, the writer of Hebrews puts it in terms that there should be measurable progress. How long have these Hebrews been believers? How long have they been followers of Christ? Well, however long it is, by this time they ought to be teachers. I have an interesting challenge for you. Some of you will take this up, and I love it when you do this. Go look in the book of Acts in the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And what I want you to note is when he starts a church and how much later he appoints elders. We have this interesting notion that to be a, a, a teaching elder in the local church um, your hair has to be already turning white, you know. You have to be a Christian for a long time. At least 40 years. You know when that thought came home to me? No, it wasn't then. It came home to me when I was 22 years old. And I stepped out of my training and was handed a license to preach and made the senior pastor, actually at that time I was associate pastor, but within a couple of years, senior pastor. 24, I was a senior pastor. 24. And I'm it. The, the burden is on my shoulders. How old do you have to be to be an elder? How long do you have to be a Christian to be an elder? Check out the sequence in Acts and see how old those guys were in the faith when Paul appointed them to be elders in the church. It will surprise you. For by this time, you ought to be teachers. Did these disciples in this first mission get it all right? How many of you think they healed people? I think they did. I mean, they would have been back long before the end of the time if they... Well, we tried, but you wouldn't believe nothing happened. No, they came back and reported. They even said, we're amazed, even the demons are subject to our, our authority. Jesus very quickly brought perspective <laughs> in that. He said, that's not the thing that you need to be really excited about. You need to be excited that your names are written in the, in the book of life. That's what's important. <clears throat> they proclaimed the kingdom of God. Were they ready to take on the big mission as you go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always to the ends of the age. You will receive the Holy Spirit when He comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. I'm going to start and build my church through you. Were they ready for that? No, they weren't. They had to learn some growth lessons and they had to learn some failure lessons. I suspect there were some things that caused them to do this. Really? 
And I think that part of that is coming back to Jesus and saying, okay, it's interesting that right after they got back, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, went up on a mountaintop, and the transfiguration occurred, gets back down, and here's the other nine disciples, and this poor father with his son, and, and, and the demons have control of this boy, and they can't do anything for him. It's like, what has happened to us? And Jesus said, well, there's a few more things you need to learn. <laughs> You've got to learn about prayer and fasting for this kind of a situation. You need, you need to spend some more time with me along those lines. So they weren't ready to take on the, the, the big task. But in one year's time, Jesus felt they were ready for this first assignment. And you know, we today in the church, we come, we make a decision for Christ. We start attending church, we go to Bible studies, we start, you know, living the Christian life. And my question is, when do you make progress to the point that you're able to lead? When you're able to explain? When you're able to teach? when you're able to communicate the faith and you're making growth and not only that you know how to deal with problem of sickness and healing and you understand how to deal with demonic spirits one year you know how to do this stuff how are you progressing in your walk that's why Paul says to us in Romans chapter 12, he says, and don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can demonstrate, that's what the word prove actually means there, so that you can demonstrate the will of God. There should be, when you first come to Christ, no one expects you to be mature. They expect you to drink milk. Nobody gives a baby a steak. I don't know if they've got any brains at all. They expect them to need milk. But there comes a time when the transitions occur and the development goes and there is a point when you should be able to eat solid food. Are you eating solid food this morning? Are you chewing the Word of God? Is it changing your mind? Uh, are you allowing the Holy Spirit to confront you with spiritual truth in such a way that it changes your thinking? You know, we quote that passage, My ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts, for my Ways are as high above the heavens, uh, you know, uh, above the earth as the heavens, and my thoughts are high above you. And we quote that, and, and we kind of, we quote it like saying, so we will never understand God. And that's not why God says that. God says you need transformation. You don't think the way I do, but you should. You don't see the world the way I see it, but you should. You don't understand 
the, the divine perspective on life. But you should. And I have given you my word so that it can transform your thinking so that it will affect your life because we make decisions out of the fundamentals of our beliefs. What do you know today that makes you different from the day you trusted Jesus? And then there's the, the, the business of acting like him. Jesus, whose fruit of his life is uh, characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, patience, temperance, gentleness, humility, self-control. How's that working for you? For by this time you ought to be gentle. For by this time you should have self-control. For by this time you should understand genuine love. For by this time you should be filled with patience. And if you think that when you fall on your face, that means you try harder, well, for by this time you need to understand the power of the Holy Spirit because He is the one that produces this. But there should be growth. You should be able to, to show a transformation over time. So what had Jesus taught His disciples? He had taught them how to surrender to God and depend on the Holy Spirit. They didn't have it all down yet, but, but they had heard the message. He taught them about himself. He taught and showed them how to deal with the devil. He showed them how to relate to those outside the community of faith and how to relate to one another in the first year. He built these truths into his life, the fundamentals, the essentials. And uh, at the risk of repeating myself, I'm going to take a short break from Luke and spend the next few Sundays focusing on these things from a different perspective. The fundamentals. Do you understand them? Are they a part of your life? Because, friends... I know most of you in the room, and many of you I've known for a very long time. And if I do the math right from the book of Acts and the letter to the Hebrews, for by this time, we ought all to be teachers. For by this time, we ought to be out there modeling the life. For by this time, we ought to be explaining the hope that is in us. For by this time, we should be instrumental in healing and deliverance, demonstrating the manifestation of the kingdom of God. For by this time, we should be eating meat. Are you ready today? Or do we need some remediation? For by this time. Father, I ask this morning in Jesus' name that you would open our hearts and minds the worst thing that could happen is not for us to come to the awareness that we're still needing milk this morning. 
the worst thing that could happen is for us to be satisfied in only having it. And I pray this morning that you would motivate us by your Holy Spirit to become those lights shining in darkness, the voices crying in the wilderness, the message and power of the Holy Spirit operating through our lives to affect others. The ability to introduce them to Jesus Christ. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.